Live from the Business Radio X studio in Atlanta, it's time for Dental Business Radio. Brought to you by Practice Quotient. Practice Quotient bridges the gap between the provider and payer communities. Now here's your host, Patrick O'Rourke. Hi there, friends of the dental community. This is Patrick O'Rourke, your host on Dental Business Radio. Brought to you by Practice Quotient, PPO negotiations and analysis providers. If you don't think you're getting equitable uh, compensation for your quality work, then you should give us a call. And if insurance companies, if you feel like your network doesn't have the top tier providers that you need in order to sell large group business, also good idea to give us a call or give Practice Quotient a call. I'm your host, Patrick O'Rourke, and I'm here with Kevin Combus today. Kevin, thank you for being on the show. How are you? Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me, Pat. It's good to see you again. Good to see you. It's good to be seen in these days. So I like the elephant behind you very much. It has these tusks, and I know that the name of your organization is named Tusk. Um, Elaborate on that for me. Yeah, so uh, it's a question that I love to answer. Um, When we were kicking around this idea of, of building a, a business to help entrepreneurs in the dental space start, grow, and sell their business, we, we knew that we didn't want to take uh, our last names and mush them together in some way. We mm-hmm. you know, we, we love, uh, uh, you know, all the other consultants out there love to memorialize their, their last names and their consulting businesses. Um, congratulations on not doing that, Patrick. And and we said, look, we're, we hope to long outlive this business. And we got to pick something else. So thinking about like we want to retake, you know, kind of reclaim a name much like Apple did. It needs to be very, very short. It needs to be very memorable. I was on a plane with my family heading up to uh, New York City for spring break. And we're going to the Natural History Museum. And I actually was going through some old journals and saw these scribbles. And I started writing down the names of the animals we were going to see. And thinking about these animals through the lens of business I said, man, we're going to actually see some mastodons. We're going to see some big woolly mammoths. We're going to see some elephants. And, you know, those are are big brooding animals with great memories that have, that that feel stayed and feels like they've been around for a little while. And then when you start thinking about, about that animal through the lens of dentistry, I mean, a tusk is simply an elongated incisor, right? And you're like, well, Mm -hmm. that's kind of a clever way to do it. And, And the dirty little secret is I'm a huge Alabama football fan. And I found a way to incorporate uh, this, this great elephant into every facet of my life. So we've got mugs and we've got pins and we've got, I mean, we have, we have hand sanitizer all with this logo on it. Um, but, but Tusk really took on a name of its own. I'll say when we were early on in the business, I was, I think I'm most proud of all the leadership putting the brand above any individual and anybody's personality um, and, it, and it's really served as well. It's been fun. We had a great graphic designer kind of jazz it up a little bit, make us look a little bit modern. And it's been a, a lot of fun to, to support this brand for the last couple of years. Do you have an elephant tattoo anywhere on your body? Um, for an extra $50, if you pay the extra $50 for the, for the VIP subscription to your <laughs> podcast, I think that's a monthly fee. We'll actually share the video that accompanies this podcast and be more than happy to share with your viewers where that where that tattoo lives. All right. You heard it here first. So $50, you can sign up on our website, send me an email, and we will get you on that VIP pass. Thank you very much for being part of a VIP program, Kevin, and making a VIP program a VIP program. Well, I'm here to create value, Pat. <laughs> <laughs> so 
um, Tusk as a brand, so we know what the brand is. Uh, what does Tusk do? Yeah, so so Tusk very simply helps entrepreneurs start, grow, or sell their group practice or DSO. Um, it, it, so we really looked to the, the dental community, and it was founded out of some frustrations that I had in the space. Um, when Tusk was founded, I had already kind of spent a 15-year career in the business, business side of dentistry after a 10-year career in finance and investment banking. So I sold dental practices for a group out of Charlotte. I had worked for a large DSO out of Kinston called Affordable Dentures, saw them grow from 120 to 210 locations. Then I had built my dental practice, Mundo Dentistry, and was the plan there was to, to scale it out to 10 locations and then ultimately become a billionaire, right? You've heard that story before? Um, a few times, yes. Yeah, so yeah, it's, it's a common refrain, right? Um, and when I, as I was talking to other entrepreneurs in the space, it, it became very, very clear to me that dentists were being taken advantage of due to information asymmetry and that there was a common refrain in the DSO community in particular where folks were saying, everybody should build a DSO it's easy. Let us help you. And for $30,000, we've got the solution to ensure that you can unlock those millions of dollars at the end of the rainbow. Mm -hmm. And I was in Mundo Dentistry working 60 to 70 hours a week, not doing any clinical dentistry with an MBA and all this armed with all this knowledge. I was like, this is a lot harder than people think it is. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot more personal risk, a lot more higher commitment and a lot of personal, personally guaranteed debt to get there. And, and all along the way, there, there are folks who, be it private equity groups, family funds, or large private equity-backed DSOs, who are armed with more information than any individual entrepreneur in the space. Sure. Instead, if there's a way to really level the playing field and bring the knowledge of the upper market, private equity group, family funds, and private equity-backed DSOs, to the entrepreneur, uh, we, we could really increase not just the knowledge, but the value. That, that the entrepreneur could actually enjoy uh, as they grew their business and ultimately when they sold their business. So that, mm-hmm. that's really the foundational principle behind Tusk. We, we have been lucky enough to work with hundreds, I mean, literally hundreds of, of dentists, entrepreneurs, and, and companies that are in some phase of their professional development and, and growing and scaling. Um, Pat, I'll tell you, this is not for everybody. We, I try to talk people out of doing this sure. each and every day. So I'm not an advocate for the industry for, for building a DSO, but I am an advocate for the free flow of information and getting, getting you the information you need to, to make the, the best decision you possibly can. Uh, and I, I'll just end with this. Inside of the organization, I've got, I've got two great partners, Parent, uh, Parent Desports and DeWalker Senha, uh, that really run the, the grow piece of the business. I, I work almost exclusively on the sell side. So we represent clients with between 200000 and $10 million worth of EBITDA. And that's, for your listeners who don't know, that's earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. It's just proxy for operating free cash flow. Uh, but our clients kind of live in that world. And our buyers are exclusively DSOs, private equity-backed groups, private equity companies, and, and really financial institutional buyers. So the work we don't do is if you're a dentist who wants to sell to a dentist and you call us, We'll refer you to a great broker, but that is not work we did. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And, you know, I knew you prior to Tusk and I knew uh, Meta Walker and Perrin and top professionals in their own spaces prior to Tusk as well. So hello, gentlemen, if you're listening to the podcast. Um, it's been a while, but um, 
glad to see everybody successful. One of the reasons why I wanted you on the show, Kevin, is not just because of, um, you know, the love I have for you, but there's, you have, you're what I would call a truth teller, right? And so I like that. And, you know, people tell me here in the South, they're like, well, you sure are direct. You, you know, you don't beat around the bush, do you boy? And I'm like, no, <laughs> don't <laughs> no, at all. I have to warn people sometimes. And like, I'm direct now in Jersey yeah. or New York, they're used to that Chicago. They're like, Hey, Hey, snappy, let's get it go. Um, but down here, there's a certain decorum. And so I've just, uh, I don't do a whole lot of the, you know, the okie doke anymore. And, and I like that. And that's what this show is about, you know, as a truth teller, and as you have now talked to the, the upper kind of knowledge base to use your terms, am I using the right term? Yeah. I, I would just call it kind of, let's call it the enterprise level DSOs, right? So over 25 locations. And then, and then let's also just call it the kind of the financial or institutional investors in the space. I'm going to call it smart money. I, I, that's a broad sweeping generalization I'd be careful with, but okay, we can call it smart money for the purposes of this conversation. All right. So folks that have smart money, all right. And then you want to bring that down to being an entrepreneur. And, you know, you told me something and I don't know if you even remember telling me this, but you told me something one time and I use it all the time. And you're like, you know, being an entrepreneur is like being in an abusive relationship. You know, some days you just get your butt kicked. You got your black eye, but you know, you left the house and you're crying, but you always go back and you go back because you love it and you don't have anywhere else to live anyway. And I get that. And I've got the black eyes and I say that to people sometimes. And I don't think, you know, being an entrepreneur, being a business owner is for the faint of heart. I mean, you, you certainly have to have a, a, a bit of grit you know, and so I, I bring that up to say bravo to you for trying to help the abused entrepreneurs out there. Yeah, look, I think that um, you've got to be a special kind of sick to, to do what we do, right? To, to, to go and, and, take, and take an idea and, and then craft a business plan, commit everything you have to it, abandon, abandon a ship, set the, shit on, set, set the ship on fire, and then hope that you can make a civilization on the island you happen to find. Um, only crazy people would do that. Um, and I, like you, I've been lucky enough to, to love what I do. I derive a high sense of self-worth from it, uh, almost uh, too much in many ways. Um, but but uh, at the end of the day, look, after the bills are paid and the payrolls met, um, the greatest sense of, of happiness I get is from a client who is well taken care of, well received, and wants to share with people their experience in working with me or working with Tusk. Uh, that's what drives me every day. So th- mm-hmm. that, that's, that, that's what's super fun about kind of getting over the first phase of the business and, and kind of getting to really taking care of the customer. And, and, and then finally thinking about iteration and, and involvement of how, how are we going to grow and how are we going to get to the next level? Absolutely. Um, when people say thank you, that, that makes my day. Uh, yeah, I, for it's sure. really, um, uh, underappreciated. And, uh, but I can tell you, it's not the money. Um, you know, it's, I can, money's the easy part, but there's, you know, I generally, I need to feel like I'm helping people. And, you know, when I go to a conference and there's a lot of clients there and they come up and they're like, thank you, Patrick, I appreciate you. That makes me feel good. And that's what keeps me going, you know? Yeah, for sure. So, um, I get that when you are looking at, 
when you're talking to the different, the various stakeholders, right? There's day to day, right? There's running, you know, the, 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 the DSO or the practice, right? And then you have the, the folks that are sitting in the boardroom. Um, what do you, what do you feel like is, do you see it? What's the biggest disconnect that you're trying to, you know, make sure that all parties understand? Yeah. So it, it, it's a good question. I, and I'll go back to one thing you said, um, just a level set. Uh, we, I was just on a call with a potential client. Um, it's got a huge business uh, out West and he, some of our clients want to be told how great their businesses are. And I, and I said, doc, I, I, before we get started, I want to let you know, I've been accused of being brutally honest. I'm going to be <laughs> compassionate with you. Okay. So uh, you're going to get that same brutal honesty, but you're going to get some compassion too. Uh, so we, our client Pat, really is kind of uh, pre private equity. Those are the clients we love to work with because those are the clients who need the most assistance. By the time private equity gets involved, they know all the answers. That's air quotes, know all the answers. Mm-hmm. Frankly, that, that's what they're getting paid their 20% carry to figure out. Um, so we're, if you talk about the disconnect, our clients many times are dentists, male and female, who built, who built a great business and they want to replicate or scale it, or they, they, they want to buy the, the neighboring practices and find ways to, to really go from being a dentist. And my, my father was a dentist. My father had an incredible practice. So he was a pediatric dentist down in Montgomery. He saw at least 100 kids a day during the summertime Had one of the largest practices in the city. Um, at the end of the day, and my father was a great businessman, great marketer, I mean, a, a remarkable, caring person, but he built himself a job because he would tell me when we were on vacation, he, he would say, it's kind of an expensive vacation. I'm like, Dad, it, the neighbors let us borrow their house. Like, I, I, I mean, I know we're going out to dinner eating fried shrimp, but what, tell me where the expense lives here. Mm-hmm. He would say, it's because I'm not in the practice earning money, right? So if you have a practice, you can be a wonderful individual and great business leader and president of your business. But if you have to be there to make money, you have created a job for yourself. What our clients like to do is, is create a business that can make money whether or not they're inside of the business, right? And that's really the definition of an entrepreneur. When you can get to that point where the business is making money with or without you, your influence wields better results, hopefully. That's a sign of a good CEO. Uh, Those are where our clients like to get. The struggle that you're mentioning happens when the clinician is battling the comfort zone of, I can make a million dollars a year in the chair because I can knock out incredible dentistry. And even if I pay myself 30% of collections, like if I'm an oral surgeon, I can make a million bucks a year. There's a big pull to do that compared with I'm going to step out of the clinical chair and I'm going to become the CEO of this business. Mm-hmm. And I know that a CEO of a business this size makes about $300,000. So I'm going to take a $700,000 pay cut to take a job that's going to be outside of my skills comfort zone, but I'm going to dedicate all of my energy, all of my efforts to that because I believe ultimately that's where I can create the most equity value when I'm ready to sell this business. And he said, that's the jumping off point for many of our clients is getting comfortable with uh, going from clinician to clinical leader to ultimately exclusively business leader as a dentist. Um, mm-hmm. And that that's a really fun metamorphosis and journey to watch and coach our clients on. That's interesting. So it's been my observation, and this is anecdotal. I don't have empirical evidence here. Uh, just, I've talked to, I don't know, 
thousands, 10,000 different um, docs and organizations over the past seven years we've been around. And the my observation has been that there's the hardest part for the growing DSO is, you know, you have somebody who's a superstar and they, they have one uh, just awesome practice. Even they have associates there and then they get to two. No, they're still knocking out of the park. Three, mm, now nah, they're getting stretched thin. Once you get beyond three, the three to six, where you, you, to your point, that's where the transition happens. And that's where the struggle is because you have to replicate all of those business processes. Then you can't be in all of those places all at one time. So scalability is repeatability. And that's where, like, that's a danger zone for yeah. us, you know, where we're like, mm, you know, if you're, you're running too fast and you, you know, you can't sit down with us, then, you know, for strategic guidance, then why, why pay us? It doesn't make sense. Yeah, uh, completely. I, I think, I think uh, going from one four corner practice with one roof and one culture. And, and if you're a master of that and you have built the perfect culture and the perfect systems and, and you, you've got your call, you know, you're, you, you've negotiated your PPO rates for practice quotient, you've maximized your revenue, you've got your profitability where it needs to be. And then you're going to go out and buy a second location. Um, it's exponentially harder than running one because you bought a culture, you bought different systems, disparate systems potentially, and you got to really digest that before you can move on to three. And three is exponentially harder than two. And then four is exponentially harder than three. And I, and I think sometimes there's a belief in the market that there needs to be a race to the number of locations I can pick up as quickly as possible. Because Chicken Little tells me the sky is falling and valuations are coming down. And I want to get in, get out, get my money and move on. And, and I, that if that is in your heart, you are setting yourself up for a horrible experience because you should set out with a business plan and execute on it at your pace because it only gets harder the bigger you get. Um, you know, we, we like to work with our clients on like, why are we doing this? What's the plan? Are we just getting big for big sake? Or do you have an exit that you're looking for? It, so it's, it, this is not a leap to be taken lightly. We all too often pass see guys who say, you know, my neighbor just sold a group and he met, or my buddy at the study club just sold a group and uh -huh. he made $3 million. And so I went out and bought three dental practices. We go, that's okay. That's good. What'd you pay for? I got a great deal. I paid 70% of collections. We go, can we, can we see the PL? Oh, you paid 20 times EBITDA is what you paid. So you, you've drastically overpaid in our, in our world of valuation because the broker told you it was a good deal at 70% of collections. So again, th this again is, just goes back to the information symmetry we see in the space that we, we really try to knock down so people are taking risks that they understand. Information asymmetry. <clears throat> Let's, um, so sometimes clients tell me, they say, Pat, I don't know what you're talking about half the time. I hear that. And I imagine you do too sometimes. We do too. We and do too. So informational symmetry. I'm going to restate that in, in my words. Um, and that's, there's a lot of noise out there and there's a lot of misconceptions. Um, and I'll, I'll use one specific example of the way that I, you know, when I was talking to, you know, over the years, I'm, I'm chatty, you know, you go to the handman, you're walking around you're talking to people and I'm like, all right, so how do you value these practices? <clears throat> and <laughs> as somebody that's uh, a business owner and, uh, you know, I'd like to say that I'm a, 
pretty pretty good math guy. Um, the answers that I got were not only all over the map, but I'll sum it up like this. Well, it's more art than science. And I'm like, I'm going to have to call bullshit on that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so um, can, you, can you help me understand the different methodologies that are out there um, yeah. when it comes to value in a practice? Yeah, this is great. So I worked for a nationally known firm uh, that did practice valuations for the purposes of buy-ins or 100% sales. And I learned at the foot of this, this incredible individual, and I am forever grateful for the opportunity that he gave me. Because if he hadn't given me the opportunity to get involved in the dental space, I, I don't know where I'd be right now, uh, but, it, but it wouldn't be here with you, right? So, and, and this here is the reward enough for, for all I need. VIP green room. That's right. VIP green room. Not bad. Not bad at all. Uh, so what we did, and this is the way I was taught, we did uh, seven approaches to value, including a discounted cash flow, an income approach to value, an asset approach to value, a market comps approach to value. And then we would weigh each of these values and come up with the answer. And Pat, it, I did 120 valuations over a four-year career, and the valuation range would come in between 75 and 85% of collections each and every time, okay? There's no way in 120 transactions there's not more variance inside of the value of a dental practice. Mm-hmm. So the, the question you got to ask yourself is, like, what in the hell's going on? Well, there is an artificial glass ceiling on valuations in a doctor to doctor world. And it looks like this. Hey, I want to buy that million dollar practice, says the young doctor coming out of residency. And the broker goes, no problem. How much money you got? And the guy goes, I don't know. Let me talk to my banker. The banker goes, I can lend you 90% of collections. And the guy goes back to the broker and he goes, all right, I know what I, I know what I can pay. He goes, well, that's what it's worth. Right. So <laughs> So this is kind of what was going on in the market for the longest time. Now, to make matters even worse, there is no connection between revenue and value. Zero. I can have a $10 million revenue business that loses a million dollars a year, and nobody wants to buy that piece of trash. Right. Nobody. Unless it's an internet company. And it's all based on clicks and users. And, you know, we're going to be profitable in 2027. Like, we're going to get there. But in a true widget business or healthcare services business, that business is arguably worth less. And you should have to pay me to take it off your hands. Mm-hmm. Um, so profit is the driver of valuation. So that, that was not ignored. But I think, I think the brokers at that age might have looked the other way on that. So the way we think about valuation today is, is pretty simple. We look at cash flow. How much profit is left over after I have paid the doctor a normalized doctor compensation? Meaning, if you're a general dentist, maybe that's thirty percent of your collections. Mm-hmm. And I paid the rent, and I paid the team, and I've paid a Patterson bill, and I've paid all my consultants, and I've paid everybody else. What's left over? Like, how much cash would I, would would an owner receive if they employed me, the dentist, to do the work next year that I did last year? And that's, that's operating free cash flow, or the term that you'll hear whipped around the DSO industry is EBITDA, which stands for interest before depreciation, uh, interest before uh, EBITDA, taxes, depreciation, amortization. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, to me, that, that's, that's actually true value. Now, 
how much am I willing to pay for that? Um, most of our buyers are willing to pay somewhere between five to 10 times your EBITDA. That results in a vastly different valuation than 75 to 80% of collections. And, and just one, one final note of this, the deal we most recently closed traded at just south of nine times EBITDA. It was a three surgeon group uh, for close to 300% of collections because the buyers don't have this artificial ceiling on uh, what they can afford to pay um, mm-hmm. because they have private equity backing and lenders in that space understand it. So it, does that does that help clear up some of the clutter and asymmetry, asymmetry that's been in the market? It does for me. I hope that uh, for our listeners, um, if you have any questions on that, send feedback to myself or really actually send it to Kevin. Uh, I don't know anything about valuation, so I'm just going to point you over there. Um, it's, it's certainly not my wheelhouse. It's just one of the things that puzzled me, and I appreciate you clearing that up um, for me because the whole art, it's more art than science. That's not going to work for me. No, I mean, oh. it's, it's, it's supply and demand at the end of the day, right? right. So, I mean, I, I can That's kind of what I was thinking. Yeah, you, you, I can value an asset in isolation, and I can do it in 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 the comfort of my cute of my cubicle, right? And I can run every spreadsheet known to man and go, "This is the value." But until someone exchanges cash for an asset uh, without duress involved, we don't know what the value is. Mm-hmm. So our process is um, get to the adjusted EBITDA, go broad to the market, make sure that we bring as many bidders to the table, which is the demand side. We express to the market how unique this asset is. That's the supply side. There's low, there's low supply for assets like this. There's high demand for assets like this. And we're going to drive up purchase price on behalf of our client. You know, that's not unlike what we do um, in a way. That's just, it's a little bit, uh, the parties that we're going to, to the market is what I say. It's not Wall Street, right? Uh, you right. really have to, hey, here's what's awesome about our, our doc. You know, Mundo, let's say Mundo Dentistry. And this is this is why you need Mundo in your network, right? They're awesome for all of these reasons. There's the the um, how long have you been there? The doctor's training expertise, any competitive advantages in the market, and then there's the market, which is the buy sell aspect, right? Which is what is the market willing to pay? The insurance industry as a whole willing to pay Mundo Dentistry, and once you then do mode, median, standard deviation, you know you're averaging out, you're grading on a curve from high school um, for those listeners, um, then you are able to really understand the value of that practice in the market in whatever market you're looking at, I suppose. Right. Does that make sense? Perfect um, sense. Yeah. And so what do you, right now I, you know, there's a ton of noise. Um, there's always hey, a lot of noise. Hey, can, can, can I ask you an insurance question? Of course. So we are we are um, bumping up into um, clients you know, that are in a growth phase that are that are in California that are facing Delta Premier, and Delta Premier is going the way of the dodo bird. W- what can our clients who are looking to buy practices with Delta Premier do, if anything, to maintain that premium reimbursement? Is there anything they can do? Um, so. This is a very, very good question. And this has been problematic for a couple of years. And so there, and thank you for asking it. So in my opinion, all right, now this is just my opinion, but I'm an insurance guy and I've been doing this for over 20 years. So the idea that dental, the Delta Premier is going away, um, I think is premature. 
Okay. Okay. Now, do they want it to go away? Yeah. You know, so what they, what do they want? So the product in group dental insurance, right? It is the network. When you go to a school board or you go to a hospital or you go wherever you say, look, we have the largest network in the country. Okay. And that's the number one thing. That's dental insurance. That's, it's a benefit. So that's what they want. You know, Acme widget company and the school board and hospital, they don't really care about dental insurance. The only reason they have dental benefits is the same reason that they're offering any benefits. It's to attract and retain talent. Right now, the CFO and the CEO and the board and the HR uh, executive, they don't really care. So they're just like, you have the biggest number of providers. That's the product. It literally is question one. And so then if you make that cut, then you move on to the next phase, which is like benefits, costs, et cetera. So now Delta has done a phenomenal job over the past several decades building out its premier network, which inarguably right, is the largest network in the country. They're the only ones that could say that. <clears throat> I used to sell a large group business and I would walk into, you know, uh, the board and I'm like, oh, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Patrick O'Rourke. I'm from Humana and we have the largest network in the country. Etna walks in right after me, right? And the lady's like, I'm from Etna and we have the largest network in the country. You know, I can't disprove her. She can't disprove me. The only one that can say that with a straight face um, is Delta. Now, but what did they do in order to have that large network? Well, they paid a little bit more. So now they have all of this business. Um, and what they would like to have happen is to keep the largest network, but pay it at the skinny network price. Sure. Okay. Now that sounds very capitalistic. Right. I, I don't, we have capitalistic for a nonprofit. You don't say um, now I don't blame them. I mean, listen, that's the game. That's business. Um, I get it. And so, now, the, the challenge is um, when you get to, to be that big, <clears throat> there's some docs. Um, and the one thing I've learned over the past seven years is good luck getting the docs to do anything. Like, there's no real commonality. Um, and so, but what's happened in California? So this is a very good example. It's going the way of Washington State. I don't know if you ever talked to somebody in Seattle, like that's sure. a problem. Or Alabama, where there's another carrier there that has a dominant There's an issue there too. Yeah, right. it's right. all and, relevant. Yeah. And so once the, once a carrier gets to a dominant market share, whatever that tipping point is, then, you know, they go, all right, now we have all of the leverage. doesn't matter who you are. We have the leverage. Now we're coming to bring our cost of care down. What's our cost of care? That's the provider community. And so then they're going to squeeze it. And so then their market share grows and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy once you get to that point. And if you can saturate your market, i.e. Washington State, Western PA, Alabama, very, very good examples with three different organizations. So this is not unique to Delta. I'm not picking on you, Delta. Please do not call me. I love you. <laughs> You're welcome on the show anytime, by the way, guys. Anytime. We come come on. We'll, we'll have a we'll put on the music and get you in the green room. Anyway, I digress. So back to your issue. So Delta now says, All right, well, listen, Premier Docs, we're gonna wait you out. Right. We're just going to mm-hmm. wait for people to retire. And then, you know, so now you have a million. Let's just keep it easy, Matthew. You have a million dollar practice. And now um, you have Dr. You know, rookie, the buyer who wants to come in, buys a practice. And so you're losing, you know, at least 20 basis points. And I've done the math so many times. I'm telling you, it's probably around 35 to 40 percent. That's the math we see. Yeah. And so, you know, if you're a million dollar practice and you're 70% Delta, which is not uncommon in California, you just lost a quarter million dollars. And now you're working for all of those patients and you went from getting a reasonable 
premier rate, like premier, everybody thinks premier is like the gold standard. Um, and it used to be, but now it's just it's around 70, 75 cents on a dollar, which is what an actual standard discount should be. Right. And so indulge me on the over explanation here, but I think it's important. So now it goes down to 52 cents on a dollar, 55 cents on a dollar, depending on the production of that particular provider. Right now that is not equitable. All right. So you're not covering your overhead, assuming that your overhead is 60% or more, 65%, if you're including hey. your doctor salaries. And I'm sure their spouses want that included, right? I know my wife would. Always. You know? And so now we're losing money. You know, not only did we just lose money, but now we're going to have to get really, really lean, really, really fast. And so what happens then is that the quality of care suffers. And, but essentially they got you. So what's happened in Seattle, can you have a successful practice in Seattle? Yeah, sure. You know, people do it. You know, is there anything you can do uh, with the problem that we're facing here? No. Um, they don't care. You know, they're like, we got 80% of the market. So if, if, I'm, if I'm thinking about starting a DSO and I'm state agnostic, and can I come to you and say, Pat, given what you know about the market, where shall I go for the highest, highest likelihood of highest reimbursements for the next five years. Yeah. Yeah. I could probably tell you that. Yeah. Okay. So then, and then the other, the, the second chapter of that story is once I have those reimbursements after working with you, I can look at acquisitions very differently because the acquisitions I'm going to be looking at a million dollar practice, $200,000 of profit, call it uh, five times value to, to put it right at another million dollars of value. Everybody kind of follow that math. Million revenue, 20% profit, 2 million of EBITDA, 2 million, sorry, 200,000 of EBITDA times five is a million dollars. Now, I'm going to look at that and go, first question I want to ask if I've worked with you, Pat, is to that target, hey, send me your reimbursement rates for your top five biggest payers. And then I'm going to run a spreadsheet analysis and compare that to my reimbursement rates. And I'm going to look at the immediate, immediate synergistic increase in revenues that I know I can hit without asking anybody to work any harder next year. And this is a tool that every DSO in the nation worth their weight in salt uses on every M&A transaction. Amen. So, yeah, yeah we do it. you might be paying, you know, a million dollars today for that business, which equates to a five times uh, multiple on your trailing 12 EBITDA. But if I know my reimbursement rates are, 10, 15, 20% higher, and that'll do a thing. Uh, 12 months from now, that EBITDA multiple looks like a four, not a five. And I look smart as a provider and buyers love that. So, I mean, so I, I think that there's a lot you that you are doing, can do, and will continue to do for those looking to scale and grow that, that maybe it's not immediately intuitive to the growth-minded doctor. That, what you just explained is something that we do not necessarily advertise, um, but is crucial and critical and well, it's sought after. Um, so kind of a gem there from Kevin Compass. Uh, listeners, hopefully that was helpful. I'm going to go back to one second too, because you asked me a question and I don't want to leave the listeners hanging if you're in oh, California yeah. to the Delta Premier deal. This is a tough thing. And the gospel that I've been preaching to California for years now, okay, is that 
I said, look, this is a problem. It's going to continue to be a problem. If you're only in network with one payer and you're on Delta Premier and you're like, well, Delta Premier, this is what I do. And I don't want to take any other planes. And I just, it's what I'm going to do. I'm like, you can put your head in the sand all you want, right? But that doesn't mean the problem is going to go away. And this is what I used to say back in like 2015 and 2016. I said, look, here's the deal. All right. The train's coming. It is coming. You can hear it. You are on the tracks, right? You're laying down on the tracks. Now, here's the good news. It's not a cartoon. You can just stand up and you can walk. You can walk away and you won't get hit by the train. That's all you have to do. Yeah. You have to say, no mas. All right. This is going to be a problem. It's 40% of my revenue. That's, is that scary? Yeah. It's scary. Now, you can't walk right now at 70%. If you're at 70% of your revenue, oh, now you're tied down, brother. And so, I mean, it got to the point. You might get a kick out of this, actually. I said this analogy. And I said, I started telling the docs out there because it became old hat after a while. They call me a year later and they're like, well, it's 40%. Now it's 50%. What do I do? And I'm like, you need to diversify your revenue streams. It's yep. just like your, your stock portfolio. It's just any, you have, you have to get away from the one client that's paying you that. And so I had this analogy. I said, let's say that you're, you made seatbelt buckles and for GM, that's what your business was. You weren't a dentist. You only made seatbelt buckles for GM and they've been paying you a dollar per year for the past 20 years. You go to the Christmas party, everything's hunky dory. You love them. They love you. And then one day they call up and they say, Kevin, um, look here, buddy. Um, you know, we got a lot of suppliers now and, uh, we're just going to pay you 50 cents instead of a dollar. Sorry about that. It's your only client. What are you going to do about it? Now, I don't think that this particular analogy um, hit. And so I said, I got to come up with something that everybody understands. <laughs> and so I said, look, Kevin, and let's say you were calling, I said, Kevin, you ever dated a crazy girl before? And uh, everybody in their life. I have. Yes, I have. Has dated a, a crazy person. I mean, girls, it's the same to you. Like you're dating crazy, a person. You, for what do you have your reasons, right? You're not but you're dating this person right and they're crazy sure. and yeah. and then you're like i love you baby and this person says well i'm gonna kill you in your sleep i'm, I'm gonna stab you while you're sleeping and you're like ha, 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 you're so funny that's why well, you're so cute but she's not laughing she's like no i'm not kidding i'm really gonna kill you in your sleep a few months go by she doesn't let it go. She tells you this. She doesn't smile. And you're like, hey, everything's fine. I love that crazy girl, right? And then Valentine's Day comes around. And then you buy her a set of Ginsu's and some sleeping pills for yourself. Does that make any sense? <laughs> no. <laughs> now, it, it, does that help? Does that analogy help? I love analogies and I really try to illustrate my point. <laughs> what do you think? About All right, that? So, <laughs> yeah. I, it, the analogy is crystal clear. I've, I've, it is. It's going to be baked into my brain for the for the, if, if not the rest of the week, the rest of the rest of the day for sure. Um, all right. So so there's a ticking clock, right? And the folks who who are beholden to this payer have two choices. And I love what you say. Like just ride the train till it hits you, right? Just 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 if you're at fifty percent and you just want to milk it for all it's worth, go to a hundred percent. But realize you got nothing to sell at the end of the day, right? So that that's one pathway forward. And pathway two is diversify, 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 and create uh, an opportunity to actually have something to sell. Otherwise, we got to cut your top line that falls to your bottom line by an egregious amount of, of dollars. 
um, that the buyer is never going to see. So we can't charge the buyer for it. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and and when you're looking at acquisitions, you've got to do that math. Otherwise you're going to overpay. It's, I, I think it's, it's a, it's a story that needs to be told over and over and over again um, in these in these states that are clearly more susceptible to monopolistic pressures or to um, I don't know if you want to bad actors or just just whatever comes as a result of monopolies, right? Um, so it, uh-huh. it's interesting to me to think, and, and I'm, so I, I think about this because valuation ultimately is about cash flows and risk, right? What, mm-hmm. What's the cash flow in your business and how riskiness is that? Um, so from risk, like as long as I lock down the providers for three to five years, that's the biggest risk, right? So as long as the providers are still there, my next biggest risk is the payers, right? And that's why Medicaid businesses get dinged. And that's mm-hmm. why uh, Delta Premier <laughs> is a real problem for people. And that's yeah. why Alabama practices traded a slightly smaller multiple than other practices right down j- just north of them or just or just east of them or just west of them. So as you're building a DSO or building a group that is built to sell, and if you don't have to be holding to one state because of licensure issues, probably good to pick up the phone and call Pat and figure out where you should be. Because you're, you're still going to work 80 hours a week. doesn't matter. If you're building it in Alabama, California, or Tennessee, you're still going to work 80 hours a week. So wouldn't you like to make an extra 20%? on that 80 hours. That, that becomes the question. Mm-hmm. And when you look at where DSOs focus, it will, it will become, uh, it's obvious to me where the great opportunities live, but you got to You got to know, right. Mm-hmm. All right. And so that was a good, good conversation. I think that was important information. Um, yeah. I, I, let's help spread the word. I'll send this out to some folks. Um, and, Here's the other part uh, is my last question here and we'll wrap it up. I know you're a busy man. I appreciate your time. It's always a pleasure. For the, sure. You know, you had mentioned the chicken littles earlier and uh, the just chicken littles out there saying this and that and et cetera. Um, what do you feel like, have you heard anything that really want you that you're shaking your head about right now? And you're like, what's that? Some really kooky stuff. Um, yeah, I've heard a lot of really cookie stuff. Um, <laughs> let's do the top three. Right. So let's, let's just, you got you got to kind of note the source, right? So it, it, I'll just root it in, in valuation. So when we, um, and I don't want to make this all about COVID, but COVID was a drastically, like it was a chaotic event for the business of dentistry and also for, for the M&A markets, irrespective of the industry, because the, the credit markets froze up. Uh, core EBITDA shrunk inside of these businesses that were acquiring businesses. And, and all the buyers, we got on the phone with all of them, they're like, valuation's coming down. Well, okay, in 2019, it was at all-time highs. So maybe there is a little bit of flux there. And some of the rationale I heard was just so offensive and interesting, right? It's, uh, you know, it may, maybe, Kevin, we, we should really be looking at, you know, the, keep in mind, the market's just, it's just tanking. It's in free fall. And right. one of the biggest and fastest growing DSOs gets me on the phone, the head of business development and, and the C-suite. We believe that dental practice valuations should actually follow the stock market because the stock market <laughs> is, the, is, the, is, the, is the true north of valuation. Okay. After the market hit, it crested a new high recently, I picked up the phone. And I called that CEO and I said, <laughs> you know what? I've take, it's taken me some time 
but I've come around to your way of thinking. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. I like that. Um, yeah. You talk about throwing a dart. Um, all right. So if people want to reach you, Kevin Cumbus, the man, the myth, the legend, how do they do that? Yeah. Um, first off, you can always uh, get hit me up on cell phone. Um, 704-654-0152 is my personal cell phone. Love to hear from you if you have questions. Uh, if you have, um, you know, if you've got jokes, whatever you got, um, I'm more than happy to, to pick up the phone and chat with you. Um, you can, and, and also if it's, uh, you know, you're an email person, it's Kevin, K-E-V-I-N at Tusk dash partners.com. And if none of that, uh, you weren't able to scribble any of that down because you're driving 90 miles an hour down highway 85 in the rain because nobody's on the road, just go to Tusk dash partners.com and all the contact information is there. Okay. Very good. And once again, I would like to thank our sponsors, Practice Quotient PPO and Negotiations and Analysis at www.practicequotient.com. Uh, call their offices at 470-592-1680. You can always email me as well. I'm at P O'Rourke. That's O-R-O-U-R-K-E at practicequotient.com. Thank you for listening. And thank you very much to Kevin Cumbus and all the folks that make this show possible. John Ray, Diane, I'm looking at you. And hope you have a wonderful afternoon. Take care.